Our next talk, uh, I, I think you'll join me in appreciating that hepatitis C and the treatment of hepatitis C infection has changed markedly in the past year. We're very fortunate to have Dave Thomas with us today, who is Professor of Medicine and Chief of Infectious Diseases at Johns Hopkins, to try to make some sense of the newer drugs for hepatitis C for us. Dave? Thanks a lot, Trip. Come on. Yes. Yeah, I get the, the privilege of being able to talk about hepatitis C and hepatitis C treatment in particular. And, and that's a real honor because, uh, at least in my view, this is one of the most exciting uh, areas of medicine right now. And it will, uh, for any of you who are old enough, remind you of what happened in the mid-1990s uh, with HIV. Uh, a very exciting time where the lives of our patients uh, are being transformed by some medications that are all of a sudden effective, uh, uh, though challenging to administer. So let's, uh, let's start out. It was, it was interesting to see so many consider yourselves novices. Um, I'm kind of glad I'd have been scared if everyone was a, you know, advanced uh, treater. So uh, maybe there's something I can teach uh, all of you uh, uh, this morning. So we're starting out with these lead questions. You're a pretest, if you will. So consider this, which is true regarding the hepatitis CPIs for treatment of HIV, HCV co-infected individuals. We're now talking about co-infection. Is, is it bosepivir is preferred because there are fewer drug-drug interactions? There's no evidence that HCVPIs HCV improve response uh, in this setting. Uh, although not fully tested in HIV-positive patients, bosepivir is used for a month alone as a lead-in and then in combination with PEG and RABA. More than half of all co-infected patients taking PEG and RABA uh, and an HCVPI will have a virologic response by 12 weeks or last. Baseline resistance to HCVPIs reduces the chance of responding. Now, we're not going to discuss these now, but Based on your responses, if you got one of these wrong, your seat will buzz when I cover that point uh, during the lecture. So that's kind of the new technology that they've been able to work in. The same people that this invented the elevator buttons out there are working on, um, on this. Okay, interesting. 54% uh, say that uh, more than half have a response. 21% uh, they're not fully tested. You use bosepivir leading. Okay, good. So we have something to talk about later. Now, next question. Which statement uh, most accurately describes the use of HCVPIs? Uh, number one, bosepivir must be taken with a high-fat meal. Two, tilapivir should be stopped if HCV RNA is greater than uh, 1,000 international units at week four. Number three, bosepivir causes anal burning. Four, bosepivir should be continued, uh, tilapivir should be continued for at least 24 weeks in co-infected individuals until studies show the safety of stopping it earlier. Or five, tilapivir and bosepivir are FDA approved for HIV, HCV co-infected patients as long as they don't have cirrhosis. Joel and Tripp are answering. That's good. I like to see that. No audience response uh, thing there? Okay, let's see what we got there. Oh, good. We've, we do have something to talk about. Okay, perfect. So, so here we go. 
Let's talk about this. I think they might even ask these again at the end. We'll see if we do better then. Well, before we start with the uh, details of the drugs, it's important to know why uh, we're discussing uh, hepatitis C. Uh, and it's interesting that in the United States, because of the effectiveness of antiretroviral therapy, uh, HIV mortality, of course, has plummeted. Uh, in the meantime, uh, hepatitis C-related mortality has actually surpassed that due to HIV, uh, at least in the United States. So it's, a, it's an important public health problem in the United States and one that's projected to actually increase uh, rather than uh, to decrease. That has to do with the fact that uh, most individuals who acquired hepatitis C uh, acquired, them, uh, acquired the infection uh, 20 to 30, uh, sometimes even 40 years ago, and therefore are moving into the phase of their infection when cirrhosis, end-stage liver disease, and liver cancer are most likely to occur. Much in the same way as the manifestations of AIDS were delayed 8 to 12 years after acquisition of HIV infection. So in the United States, what we're projecting is that the HCV-related morbidity and mortality will actually increase, may even double, in the next decade. Now, fortunately, these projections are made assuming no change in our ability to treat hepatitis C infection. Uh, and, and that's actually a projection that we're all hoping will be wrong, and that's what we're going to talk about uh, for the rest uh, of this morning, at least in my uh, uh, talk. How will we make an impact? How will we prevent this projected increase in HCV-related morbidity and mortality? And these, to be clear, are data for the entire country. Uh, HIV co-infected individuals probably only represent about 10% of all the hepatitis C-infected persons in the United States. But among those who are duly infected, hepatitis C is even a greater problem because we've been able to prevent most of the other complications and liver diseases jumping out as one of the life-limiting uh, causes of uh, concern. Well, it's been a long, a long walk uh, waiting for new drugs for hepatitis C. Uh, as many of you know, uh, during this time when HIV treatment has been transformed from AZT monotherapy to one drug once a day that suppresses more than 90% of individuals, uh, in that period of time, we're still essentially, we've still essentially been using the same medications, the same one or two medications for the treatment of hepatitis C. Not much progress uh, in a long, uh, over a long time span. However, uh, uh, even after waiting for 10 years with no drugs, no new drugs uh, being approved, uh, we recently have uh, the arrival of two medications approved in the same month. Ten years with nothing new. In one month, two new medications approved, both from the same class, both HCV protease inhibitors, both direct-acting uh, antiviral agents, the first of their kind to be approved for the use uh, of the treatment of hepatitis C, uh, bosepivir and telapivir. I'm going to go through sort of the, I'm going to go through the main data that were used to register uh, uh, each of these drugs. And my objective is for you to take home uh, some of the important principles 
Uh, as you'll probably notice, there's a lot of, uh, of small nuanced points that differ between each of these drugs and the way they were licensed. Uh, it's important to take away uh, the overarching principles here. So let's start out with one of these medicines, Tilapavir. The medicine was uh, shown, of course, in phase one to be safe and potent uh, in phase two. And now in phase three, it's being tested uh, in contrast to the standard of care, which is pegylated interferon and ribavirin given for 48 weeks. We have uh, that plus placebo compared to tilapavir given for either eight or 12 weeks. So the HCVPI is given initially with pegylated interferon ribavirin only for eight or 12 weeks, and then the PI is stopped. And the um, pegylated interferon and ribavirin is continued, uh, and individuals have an opportunity to abbreviate therapy if they become undetectable. So if they achieve a, a, a very rapid and sustained virologic response, uh, from week four through week 12, uh, if they get, achieve this virologic response, then uh, they have the opportunity in the study to be randomized to either get abbreviated therapy for only 24 weeks or to go on uh, and have the 48 weeks of uh, pegylate interferon and ribavirin. So we're testing a couple things here. Mostly, how well does this PI improve the uh, uh, response rates over the standard of care? And of course, with hepatitis C, a sustained virologic response is effectively a cure. It means the virus has been removed during treatment and stays uh, out of the blood for six months after discontinuing treatment. So if you look at these, uh, the standard of care, about 44% of people were able to be cured. That's the typical. And right now I'm talking about genotype 1, only genotype 1 hepatitis C, and I'm not, none of these people have HIV. They're all HIV-infected individuals were excluded from this registration trial. Uh, and in contrast, those that received uh, at least eight weeks uh, or 12 weeks of tilapavir had virologic response rates of 69 or 75%. Uh, percent. So marked improvements in uh, virologic response. And in data that I'll show you uh, uh, in a minute, uh, uh, that occurred even if individuals had the abbreviated um, uh, treatment course. So you're able to achieve 20 to 30 percent improvements in cure rates with taking the medications in about two-thirds of patients for half the time. A big step forward. Notice that uh, African Americans continue to respond uh, uh, less than, uh, than Caucasians, but uh, in addition benefit from the use of these uh, HCV protease inhibitors. The 12-week arm was carried forward and approved by the FDA. So uh, you don't have to remember the blue, the, the red is what uh, went forward, and that's the way the medicine's been licensed for use in the United States. Tilapavir, similar principle, we're comparing the PI to placebo, but the study design is different. In this, with this PI, uh, patients begin taking pegylated interferon and ribavirin with no PI for a month. Everyone starts that way. It's called lead-in. Notice that you're not leading in with the PI. That would be really bad because that would be like taking a Favarin's monotherapy, for example. You don't want to lead in with a hepatitis C PI. Instead, the opposite was true. 
the thought was let's lead in with pegylated interferon and ribavirin. Then we'll give either placebo or the PI to individuals and see if we can improve their virologic responses. In this study, as in the former study, there is so-called response-guided option where we're going to try to abbreviate therapy for the people who get quick and sustained responses. And so in this study, it's a bit different than the other one, but the principle is the same. Here, those in this arm who get the HCV PI and pegylated interferon and ribavirin and who have a rapid response that's sustained over the first, between weeks eight, so that's four weeks into the PI, and week 24 of overall treatment, then some of them will stop their medication while others will go on and be randomized to take placebo, pegylated interferon, and ribavirin through the balance of the 48 weeks. So here we're comparing, once again, the two different things. And once again, the big picture outcome is that whereas the standard of care was able to cure 38% of individuals, the HCV PI-containing arms had improved sustained virologic response rates. And even those who went into the response-guided arm and had abbreviated therapy were able to achieve high virologic response rates. So based on these data, both medications were approved for use in genotype 1 hepatitis C infection. And for both of them, the option for response-guided therapy was also approved so that therapy could be abbreviated. And some individuals could be cured with as little as 24 to 28 weeks of treatment. Well, as you might gather, there's also a lot of interest in retreating patients who failed prior pegylated interferon and ribavirin. And so for both of these medicines, there are data to show that you can improve response rates if you retreat with a PI compared to retreating with placebo, pegylated interferon and ribavirin. So these are the data, first of all, for the telapavir studies where individuals who relapsed after prior therapy, so that means they got undetectable and then on pegylated interferon and ribavirin. But once the therapy was stopped, infection came back just like it was before they started. In this group of individuals who were actually the easiest to treat, very, very high response, sustained virologic response rates were achieved with even a small amount of a brief period of telapavir therapy, 12 weeks in this study. In contrast, individuals who had achieved no virologic response, so this means when they got pegylated interferon and ribavirin, the viral load did not come down, it essentially didn't budge. This is the most difficult to treat population, and you can see that retreating them naturally doesn't do a whole lot. And if you add an HCVPI, you can get about a third of them to be cured. So even in the most difficult to treat population, there's some evidence that you can improve responses with retreatment, and then obviously intermediate responses in those who had a partial response to prior treatment. Likewise, with bosepavir, we have data on both relapsers and partial responders. There were no null responders in the Phase III registration trials, but there were some 
in the Phase II studies with bosepivir, and the FDA went on to approve bosepivir for use in all of those retreatment populations. Once again, improved responses in all of those who take the HCVPIs. This is a second study done with telapivir that I'm showing just to emphasize the opportunity for the short, abbreviated treatment. This paper came out a week or two ago in the New England Journal. And in this study, once again, there's individuals who were randomized. About two-thirds of individuals in this study were HCV negative at week four, HCV negative at week 12, and therefore qualified to go on to only 24 weeks of therapy. And when their responses were compared to those who had the full PEG-inlated interferon robivine for 48 weeks, there were very high overall responses, first of all, and no difference, no benefit to prolonging treatment. So HCV, the opportunity is here to treat HCV and HIV-negative individuals for as long as 24 weeks. And in the subset that has rapid responses, there's very high overall cure rates. Well, not surprisingly, since we're adding one medicine to the two others, these new treatments have added side effects. There's no reduction in side effects. Both telapivir and bosepivir have increased the frequency of some adverse events compared to the PEG-inlated interferon and robivirin arm. And you can see that that's true with telapivir, especially with skin manifestations, both pruritus and what can be a very severe rectal burning. And there can be severe rash that occurs with telapivir and some GI manifestations. With bosepivir, there's an increased risk of anemia and a much increased risk of needing recombinant erythropoietin to sustain treatment and some dyskusia reported more often in the bosepivir arms. The other adverse event that is new for the first time, we're talking about resistance with hepatitis C treatment. We've never gotten into this before because with interferon and robivirin, neither acts as a direct acting antiviral agent, neither is known to select for resistant virus. But now that we have direct acting agents with both bosepivir and telapivir, resistance can occur and you can now order resistance testing is now commercially available. Resistance occurs in nearly everyone who has breakthrough, so increases in viral load while on the HCVPI. Interestingly, resistance with hepatitis C PIs, once the medication is stopped, often the resistant virus is no longer detectable when you look 12, 18, 24 months later. As with HIV treatment, often the wild type virus overgrows and dominates in the viral quasi species and you can't find the resistant variants anymore. However, unlike HIV, there's no biologic basis for archiving these variants. And so we're really not sure what the long-term consequences of selecting for HCVPI resistance will be. And in particular, we haven't really developed data on 
whether on the important question of will these individuals have a harder time responding to another treatment course that includes an HCVPI. And those are the kind of studies that are being done now and hopefully will have results in the future. We're hopeful that that won't be the case. The other thing that's a little different than HIV is that with hepatitis C resistance, so far at least there are no convincing data that baseline resistance affects treatment response. So at least in my view, there's no indication right now for ordering resistance testing before you treat, unlike the situation with HIV where that is the case. So with hepatitis C, when would you order resistance testing? Well, there aren't any clear guidelines for that, but it may be that it might be useful in instances where you have breakthrough to capture the information on what variant is there on the off chance that that will be helpful down the road when you choose retreatment. One of the other side effects of hepatitis C treatment, of these new hepatitis C treatments, is cost. Pegylated interferon and ribavirin was already expensive, but we're adding to that either tilapavir or bosepavir. And the treatment costs of those vary, of course, depending on the payer, but the treatment costs are significant. In Maryland, the costs are right around $50,000 for each of them for the AIDS drug administration programs. So you're adding that to the $30,000 to $40,000 for the peg interferon and ribavirin, and you haven't even paid the doctor yet. But unfortunately, that doesn't add very much to the cost of care, as I think some of you may know. Sometimes you want to be a pharmacy. Okay, so the other thing that's changed to some extent with these more potent drugs is that the predictive factors, the factors that we used to use to determine the likelihood of responding to treatment, those also are changing somewhat. And overall, what's happening is the greater potency of these regimens starts to mask the differences in treatment response that you might be able to tease out with some of the predictive factors. For example, HCV viral load, if you look here for tilapavir, notice that the standard of care arm in the registration trial had a twofold difference in cure rates based on viral load. And that's typical. That's the kind of thing we've seen, and that's why we always emphasize the importance of treatment of treating low viral load individuals. However, there's no difference really detectable when you add in a potent PI. And likewise, some of the other pretreatment factors that show significant differences in response rates in like the baseline fibrosis stage that show significant differences with PEG and RABA, differences are diminished when you add a potent PI. The same sorts of trends are evident with bosepavir, although I admit that there are some hard to explain nuanced differences when you compare between these studies, probably just having to do with the fact that these are post hoc analysis of admittedly different populations. Well, let's take a step back and just kind of get a handle on the two different drugs to try to summarize some of this. There are important similarities in that both medications improve cure rates compared to the standard of care. 
uh, and some important differences. Remember that the bocepivir uh, uh, was registered with this one-month lead-in. That's not the case with tilapivir. Uh, the, uh, the duration of taking the PI in patients who are being treated for the first time is either 24 or up to 44 weeks with uh, bocepivir. There's also an option for an intermediate uh, course, uh, whereas with tilapivir, it's 12 weeks. Uh, the proportion who qualify for the abbreviated therapy is somewhat different, but for both of them, there's that option. And you can see uh, as you go through, I really provide this table for the sake of your reference so that you can uh, get a sense of some of the similarities, some of the differences. Both have increased added uh, AEs, but the AEs differ. They both increase the risk of anemia, but with tilapavir, there's a lot more of the skin uh, issues and a bit more of the GI, uh, whereas with uh, bocepivir, it's chiefly the anemia that's a problem. The pill burden is significantly greater with bocepivir. It's twice as much. Both are Q8 medicines. Q7 to 9 is the way they were uh, registered. Uh, but uh, the, there's twice as many pills with bocepivir. That's the bad news. The good news is with bocepivir, you only have to take it with some food, whereas with tilapavir, it's kind of like the nelfinavir days where you've got to take it with 20 grams of fat. So that's the, the way it was uh, licensed, and, and, and a high-fat meal is difficult to take three times a day. Patients, some patients actually have found that to be delightful, while others have been complaining. Um, okay. Important to know and important to emphasize that there are populations where these medicines have not yet been tested, and certainly where they're not licensed, and on the top of the list in this room, it has to be the HIV, HCV co-infected patients where there is no FDA indication, so we're talking about their use off-label. Likewise, in patients with cirrhosis, though there were few in the registration trials, there is some evidence that some of these um, maneuvers, like the abbreviation of therapy, taking it, for example, for only 24 weeks with tilapia, that that might be risky in patients with cirrhosis or really any of the hard difficult to treat populations, African-Americans with cirrhosis, certainly that's going to be a concern with HIV co-infection, that that shortening might not work out so well when you get into the tougher populations. The other thing I'm not showing um, on this slide, but that's important to emphasize, is that patients with other genotypes, I'm only talking about genotype 1 so far in this talk, but patients with genotype 2 and 3 uh, also can be difficult to treat uh, in some instances. And so there are data that indicate that you can use both of these medicines to improve response rates in genotype 2, but not genotype 3, but the medicines aren't licensed for either of those. Uh, there were no uh, large-scale registration trials done. So uh, it, it's possible to, to sort of underscore that point to use them for genotype 2. But interestingly, as probably those of you that are experienced know, that's not been a real hard, it's not been really hard to cure genotype 2 hepatitis C. So that's not been a really big need, and so the companies didn't emphasize uh, that. But let's go ahead and break out some of the information for the, this special population of HIV, HCV uh, co-infect individuals. And to date, we have data on tilapavir, uh, but in one week, uh, one week from tomorrow, the bocepavir data will be presented at IDSA and be publicly uh, accessible. 
So I'll show you the, the data that are currently uh, on record. And these, in this study, there were really two parts to this study. In the first part, patients on no antiretroviral therapy, but who had high CD4 counts and what was considered generally controlled HIV infection and no clear indication for heart, were uh, randomized to either take telapavir, pegylated interferon, and ribavirin, or pegriba and control and were followed, uh, they got the telapavir for 12 weeks, just like in uh, the HIV negative studies, and then uh, we're sort of monitoring them. There's a planned 12-week analysis, which I'm going to show you. Part B was taking essentially the same study design, only in this instance, patients were allowed to be on antiretroviral therapy that included um, uh, Truvada and either efavirenz or boosted atazanavir. Now, here's the thing. If you took efavirenz, because of some early uh, PK studies that Dr. Flexner is going to explain uh, in greater detail later, uh, if you were going to take efavirenz, you had to take a higher dose of telapavir. And so the telapavir, an extra pill three times a day. And so, you know, that, that and, and as I'll show you, that worked out fine. However, I will caution that in real practice, that would increase the cost of 12 weeks of telapavir to around about $72,000. Okay, so here we go. These are the data. Um, the, uh, if you compare at, at week four, the proportion of individuals who have no detectable HCV in their blood in uh, the various groups, either no heart, efavirenz-containing heart, adazanavir-containing heart, or the overall group, you can see that there were very high proportion achieved rapid viral suppression of hepatitis C if they got the HCVPI. And if you compare that, I, this is not a typo, there, this is what happens with um, co-infection. If you compare that to the group that got placebo, there were almost no uh, rapid virologic responses. Now that's a bit extreme, um, and some people are concerned with that, but it was a very small study. There were only 50 total patients um, uh, enrolled. And now I actually show you the number of patients that were available at the, um, at the 12-week planned analysis that was presented at Croy last year. And once again, very high response rates uh, in those who were randomized to telapavir, irrespective of whether they had um, which type of antiretroviral uh, combination they were on, and that compared to uh, low overall response, uh, 12, low overall proportion of individuals that had viral suppression at 12 weeks in the placebo group. So these were very encouraging data that suggested that the same sorts of benefits that we've seen uh, for, for individuals without co-infection might be um, realized for those uh, with HIV. Now you can't, um, really you can't even sit down and talk to a patient about this right now without their having to uh, also discuss the, the opportunity to be cured without interferon. Because that's always been the holy grail for hepatitis C. When are we going to have an atriplo-like medication that we can use, give it for 12 to 24 weeks and cure individuals and get this thing over with without hurting them uh, in, in the process. So I'm also going to show you some very early data where that suggests that that will be possible. 
So in this study, individuals who previously failed to respond to pegylated fenerobarbine, the hardest group to treat, were randomized to get an HCVPI and a drug that acts in another place in the life cycle, uh, an NS5A inhibitor, uh, or they were randomized to get those two drugs plus PEG and RIVA. And the ones that got the four drugs all got undetectable, uh, and that's terrific. Okay, so even though they were non-responders before, you put in two new drugs and you can get everybody undetectable. That was great. Uh, not surprisingly, if you take this group and give them uh, just these two um, agents that weren't terribly potent in, phase, uh, in early phase testing, you are actually, to be more precise, didn't have a very high resistance threshold in early phase testing. You have a lot of them getting virologic breakthrough. So that's the bad news. The good news was that when they look back um, uh, on these uh, individuals, the four individuals in that study who didn't have that virologic breakthrough, uh, they ended up being cured. So the first four, it's only four patients, but four patients were cured with no interferon. And that uh, is proof that it's possible uh, and uh, exciting when you look at the future, especially when you see all the potent medications coming down the pipe, including some with very high resistance thresholds. So um, to summarize, uh, there's no question that we're into a really exciting time. It's going to remind you a lot of 1995 and 1996. Uh, we have new medicines. They offer huge advantages to our patients compared to what they were previously able to take, but they also have huge challenges, uh, just like the first uh, wave of HIV medications did. Uh, these are some interesting quotes that, that, that uh, those who were involved in reviewing this process and reviewing these uh, medications for the FDA. This changes the game completely. Uh, so, so in other words, this is a game-changing uh, discovery, and, and I would agree with that. Uh, another person who reviewed all these data and was on the FDA panel said, I do think you have to be somewhat of a Talmudic scholar to prescribe this drug, uh, however, talking about one of the two uh, at the time. So uh, game changers that are, that are tricky to take, uh, uh, tricky to use, lots of nuances uh, in the package inserts uh, that, are, uh, that you have to have pay attention to. And then when you actually get these things into the clinic and start talking to your patients, you find out a, a, a range of responses. Uh, here's one uh, from a doctor. Uh, Dave, I have in both axillas and in the groin an erythematous purpuric rash. The skin is bright red and feels a bit like elephant skin and it looks angry. After three hydrocortisone pills, uh, he, the, he actually means um, suppositories. The last bowel movement was just as painful as now. Uh, I'm passing painful gas. It's more tolerant. I've been uh, in bed rest most of the day today. I'm wiped out and worried. Another patient, for the past week, every other day, uh, or every two days, I've had extreme burning, very watery stool, so bad I sometimes can't make it to the bathroom. And then a final patient, uh, Dr. D, I'm very sick, I can't do this, I'm done, I'm not taking my medicines properly, I'm stopping. So uh, these medicines, uh, I, I, will, I will finish by saying that he got a quick phone call from his provider, he didn't stop. He, he did achieve uh, a virologic response. It, 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 he has an end-of-treatment response. We're hoping he'll have a sustained response. And he's a guy who failed treatment before, and he's a guy who has cirrhosis with early decompensation. Really needing treatment, getting treatment, suffering like mad with treatment, but potentially having his life saved uh, because of it. So it's a very exciting time to be uh, involved in hepatitis C care, and I am delighted to have had the chance to share with you this morning.
Okay, we'll end the morning with questions, or end the half morning with questions for Dr. Thomas. So, again, please write them down or come up to the mics in the middle of the room. Um, Dave, you gave us a nice table comparing the two drugs, Bisoprevir and Tilaprevir. Which one should we use in our HIV-infected Well, right now, actually, that's the easiest answer uh, because in HIV, HCV co-infected patients, for the next eight days, the only, only drug that you have any data on is Tilaprevir. So that's the one that you should use. Okay, let's imagine that we're nine days from now. Are there any other questions? <laughs> <laughs> All right. I, I see some hands in the back. <laughs> no, look, I mean, some people will use uh, the projected uh, adverse events. Some people will look at the drug interactions, and you're going to have uh, you know, a world expert, Dr. Flexner, talk to you about that in a bit and say, okay, looks like this one is going to be safer with the antiretrovirals that my patient is on. Um, uh, best of all, a lot of individuals are enrolling co-infected patients, since this is all off-label, into um, treatment trials, and the ACTG Bosepivir trial will be up uh, and going soon. Uh, there are two other uh, clinical trials that are being rolled out uh, with eight different HCVPIs. So I think that there are no head-to-head -head trials of these PIs, and there probably won't be. So it's going to be difficult, and people uh, um, have differences of opinion in which one they prefer. It, uh, uh, some Glenn Treisman once told me that I asked him, well, which, which antidepressants should you use, right? Okay, because there's all these choices and stuff. And he said, Dave, you should pick one that makes people go to sleep, pick one that makes them wake up, and, uh, and learn all the side effects and the doses and stick with it. And, and that might not be a bad idea with HCVPIs, too. You're going to let me get away with that? <laughs> okay, good. All right, so let's go back to these questions and see how we did, um, uh, how much I covered. Which is true regarding the HCVPIs for treatment of co-infected persons? Okay, so now we're going to go back to that one. Plosepivir is preferred because it has fewer drug interactions. I didn't really get into that too much because Charlie is. But let's see how many people go with that. There is no evidence that PIs improve response. Please don't answer yes to that. Although uh, not fully tested in HIV-positive patients, bosepivir is used a month alone, lead-in, the PI first, uh, then in combination, for more than half of HIV-HCV co-infected patients taking PEG and RABA and a PI have virologic response by 12 weeks, more than half. Uh, and then baseline resistance testing improves the chance of responding. Oh, that's fabulous. So um, we, we, did, um, we did do something right there. Okay. Which statement uh, most accurately describes the use of HCVPIs? Bosepivir must be taken with a high-fat meal. Was that the one? Tilapavir should be stopped. Don't you wish school was like this? You know, you could do it. And then we all had one teacher that was like that. You know, if you could get them to sort of talk about the test, you'd get all the questions right. Tilapavir would be stopped if HCV RNA is greater than uh, uh, 1,000 at week four. Bosepavir causes anal burning. Tilapavir should be continued for at least 24 weeks in HIV co-infected patients until studies show that it's safe to stop it earlier. Both tilapavir and bosepavir are FDA approved for co-infected adults without cirrhosis. 
<laughs> okay, can I have the first slide, please? <laughs> no, I'm just kidding. We're going to do the whole thing again now. <laughs> I'm just kidding. So, um, okay, let's do this one. Okay, look. We, uh, only 8% said bocephavir is not the high-fat meal one. That's tilapavir. I, I kind of intoned that when I was reading the question. So, um, Number two, tilapavir should be stopped if HCV RNA is greater than, than 1,000. Some of you might have been tricked because it's actually a lower threshold. But that's, this is still true. Uh, the stopping rule for, for tilapavir is lower than 1,000. But certainly if it's greater than 1,000, you would, you would go ahead and stop. Um, so that's true, and 31% of you got that right. Bosep, and, and in fairness, I really didn't get into the stopping rules very much, so um, that's fair. Bosepavir causes anal burning. It's the other guy, uh, Tilapavir, that does the anal burning. Tilapavir should be continued for at least 24 weeks in co-infected persons. Tilapavir is never used more than 12 weeks. Co-infection, mononfection, nothing. There's a lot of bad things that start happening after 12 weeks, and that's why it, it's only used now in, for 12 weeks and only approved for 12 weeks. Both tilapavir and bosepavir are FDA-approved for co-infective. No, neither one of them. It's not many people. So the main thing there is to, is to keep straight the two drugs, and it is challenging. Uh, bosepavir uh, has actually fewer side effects, the chief one being anemia. Tilapavir has got the anal burning, the high-fat issue, uh, uh, and um, uh, it, it also has the rash issue. Other questions? Hey, we got 10 HIV protease inhibitors, and we all keep those all straight all the time. Yeah, but you didn't in 1996. True enough. Okay, here's a good one. Uh, Dave, which patients should be encouraged to be treated now with what we have today versus waiting years to, uh, to have all oral regimens? I think this is one of the most important questions, and especially with co-infected patients, because you, you don't have an indication. You have very scant safety data. You have absolutely no SVR data. And so in, in that context, I think it's um, especially uh, important to ask, when should I take the risk of using these? Certainly patients with cirrhosis and the most, um, uh, I mean, simple answer is for the, for the patients where the benefits outweigh the risks. Okay. So that's the kind of thing you write in guidelines and helps no one. Uh, but when you get to the practical issues, certainly someone with cirrhosis. Uh, you should uh, very strongly consider treatment because, especially in a co-infected psoriatic, there's a decent chance that the new med they might have significant um, complications before the new medicines come, uh, newer medicines, newer, safer medicines come, because uh, that's going to be uh, at least three years away. Um, patients with bridging fibrosis, I lump in with cirrhosis. Uh, patients with lower stage disease, uh, I think you uh, could make an argument for waiting and monitoring. Um, and then certainly patients for whom you project there's going to be a really hard time taking the medicines, uh, then that would also, uh, for those that are sort of in the in-between on their disease staging, shift you in one direction or another. Uh, their motivation, their likelihood of having problems with PEG uh, or one of the study medicines, their likelihood of having an interaction between these medicines and their heart, uh, for example, all of those are factors that kind of shift you one way or the other uh, with individual patients. Great, thanks. Mike? Actually, as a follow-up to that question, the predictive value of genetic testing of the patient, CC versus TT, 
So I knew that that would come up. I, you can see in your handout there are two slides on this, and they were skipped because I just wanted to be on time. Sorry. Um, the answer to that is, uh, first of all, there's a genetic test, uh, kind of like the way you use B57 to predict who's going to get a back of your hypersensitivity. You can use a genetic test to predict the likelihood of responding to PEG and RABA. The test also works for co-infected individuals. It's a dramatic uh, uh, indicator, uh, the strongest pretreatment indicator of the likelihood of responding to PEG and RIBA. The, like all pretreatment indicators, the degree to which it predicts response with protease inhibitors is diminished compared to not using protease inhibitors. But it still does tr predict treatment response, at least with tilapavir containing arms. And it also predicts the likelihood of qualifying for the shortened treatment arms. So some people say it's still good to get it because you can tell your patient, hey, you've got a good chance of getting into the short arm or you've got a good chance, you've got even a, uh, you have a great chance of getting an SVR. Some people say it's worthless now. Um, it's a great test that came out about 10 years too late. Uh, and so both are, are defensible uh, positions. Dave, question from the audience. Um, can we treat without getting a liver biopsy in 2011? So, um, interestingly, the guidelines have said that you could treat without a liver biopsy since 2004. Um, so you can use non-invasive testing to, um, to get a proxy of the stage of disease. I still think you should get some form of disease staging. Okay, so I want to be clear on that first. When I, what I'm saying is I do think you should stage disease. If you're at a place where you can't get a good, big, 14-gauge liver biopsy um, that's read by somebody that knows what they're doing, then it's probably smart not to get one. Because if you're getting a, a kind of a, a fragmented 18-gauge, you know, 9-millimeter piece of tissue, that's almost worthless and inferior to the non-invasive tests that are cheaper and safer. So I suggest that you get a non-invasive test. Uh, there are several ones out. LabCorp has one. Uh, Quest has one. There's, you can order them. And they're not bad. And they're good at putting people in the extremes, which is all you really need to know. If they're cirrhotic, you've got to know that. Why? Because you've got to do a patocellular carcinoma screening. And you're not going to do RGT, response-guided therapy. So. Some people say to me, why should I stage at all if I know I'm going to treat? It's because knowing the stage also affects how you treat, possibly, with the RGT issue and the need for uh, HCC screening. Great. Back to the mic. In 96, when we started going from triple nuke therapy to uh, the new PIs, we were wondering, you know, who should be treating this? Who, who you know, is it someone that's treating 10 patients versus over 50 patients? Do you see us treating Hep C in the next five years? That's a good question, Well, So I think that there will be certainly a need for more people to treat Hep C. There's way too many patients uh, uh, for this, the, the uh, few providers that have been doing it up to now. Um, and I think that it's no, there's no question that when we have a tripla for hepatitis C and you give it for 12 or 24 weeks, it's not going to be hard to get anyone in this room to treat hepatitis. It's going to be easier than syphilis. Like, then we don't have an RPR problem. So, uh, you know, it's, it's going to be really easy and everyone will do it. In between, I think, in the meantime, every 
it's every co-infected center needs to at least have one treater. I mean, there are patients that need treatment, and, um, and, and so, uh, yeah, I mean, I think it's probably better to have someone experienced do it right now, though, uh, all honesty, because it gets a little bit. If you think you're kind of confused now about these two medicines and all the little nuances, when you get into the pharmacology that Dr. Flexner is going to go over, it can really get to be uh, a little bit tricky. Dave, if uh, a person develops side effects on one of the direct-acting antivirals, can you switch to the other? Okay. There are no switch studies yet. Um, so I'm supposed to say that first, but, of course, you're going to try to do that if the insurance company lets you get around it. Now, realize that the insurance companies aren't going to like that, and there aren't any uh, guidelines that say you should do it. But to me, it's common sense if I, uh, that one of those quotes was from a patient that was having a horrible rash. He was cirrhotic. He's a doctor, and he screams a lot. And so I, I thought, look, you know, when he, he couldn't take the, the rectal burning anymore, he couldn't take the rash, it was getting worse and worse. So I stopped. The, he was on Tilapavir. I stopped the Tilapavir. I put him on Bosepavir. He's going to take uh, 44 weeks of Bosepavir. It was an easy decision for me, and his insurance company wasn't paying attention yet. So I got that one, too. <laughs> Question at the mic. Yeah. So uh, since the 80s, those of us in the HIV field, we've been depending on Ryan White grants to take care of HIV, uh, HIV patients, and a lot of our indigent patients get treatments through the Ryan White and ADAM. Is there anything national or similar to Ryan White for hep C, mono, and co-infected? No. Okay. And last question. I wish there were, but that, no. That's unfortunate. It's interesting, the difference between the two diseases. Uh, last question, which is a good one. Um, given that there is no uh, pre- or post-exposure prophylaxis for hepatitis C, should we begin to think about using these drugs in those scenarios? Oh, for uh, people who have had an exposure? I don't think so, especially, um, it's a great question, and I've thought about that. But first of all, when you get, uh, when you're exposed to hepatitis C, presumably by a needle stick, um, or uh, uh, a uh, potentially uh, someone who's had um, uh, sexual exposure, you um, you can monitor for hepatitis C infection. You can find the few who post-exposure will be infected, and it's a small proportion, under 10%, depending on the, the sort of the risk of the um, the exposure, and then you can have about an 80 or 90% chance of curing them with even interferon, mono, with interferon therapy all by itself. So when you, when you sort of look at that and, and, and the very small proportion who would fail all that and then the extremely high likelihood that that group will get interferon-sparing heart or interferon-sparing hepatitis C cure in three to five years, I don't think it makes a lot of sense to treat 95 people maybe cause some harm uh, with the, um, to prevent a couple of things that you're going to cure anyway. It's different than HIV. It's different than HIV in that regard, and I think that you can take advantage of the high rates of cure uh, and uh, high rates of therapeutic alternatives uh, to not worry about preventing. Instead, focus on monitoring after an exposure and rapid intervention in those that are viremic. Okay, great. We're going to take a 15-minute break now. We'll reconvene at quarter after 11. Thank you, Dave.